0: Maureen Millican. And this is Rebecca Millican. And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah. Which we apparently... No, we don't. Well, we have had some. That's why we haven't been very regular. What better could we have to do? Well, we don't have anything better to do. We have other shit we have to do. Right. Things Like work. Yeah. Fuck. I know. I hate it. It gets so in the way (laughs) of shit. I know. Um, So... Before we start with your, you're doing something this week. I am. Um, Before we start with yours, I have an update for episode 54, Albert Flick. Oh, yeah. I also have an update for, I think it was 30... Episode 30? 30... Annie Dukan. Yeah. It's not much mm. of an update. It's for actually Sonia Farak or whatever her name was, the Western Massachusetts chemist that did all sorts of drugs. And I'm sorry not to be more detailed, but I am fucking tired of the, all the updates on this one. So the prosecutors are in trouble now because they didn't really question her result. As we've said before, the fallout is all these cases are being thrown out. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, the more interesting one is Albert Flick. That was episode 54. Yeah. That and this old is old
1: man. This is a
0: late-breaking update. Yes, eight. this is. It's uh, late-breaking. So he's the one, if you recall, and if you don't, you should listen to it, uh, he stabbed to death. Eleven times he stabbed this woman in front of her two twin sons on the street on the street in lewiston he had a history of attacking women including killing his wife by stabbing he had served time and was out of prison even though he violated probation he wasn't sent back to prison because the judge thought he was too old too old old to be violent well guess what he wasn't so he killed kimberly it was a very quick trial they picked the jury on monday and it was just yesterday so monday July 15th. 15th, it was about 10 months ago we had the yeah, episode 54, yeah. it was the fall of 2018, it was probably about a year ago, This ha- well, no, it was like August, anyways, whatever, so they picked the jury Monday. And they had their closing arguments Wednesday, and the jury deliberated for about 40 minutes, and he was convicted of Yeah, murder. surprise, surprise. Because he did it, and it was on, I mean... It was he, on video. And we talked about, the last time I did an update, he had asked for a jury trial. He first said he wanted just a, a bench trial, which means just the judge would be deciding... Instead, he asked for a jury trial, which I don't really think it matters. He would have been convicted. No, it's hard to... I mean, when you have a videotape of someone stabbing somebody.
1: Yeah, it's hard to
0: get around mm-hmm. that. So, I'm glad he'll be in prison, even mm-hmm. though he's like seventy-nine, seven, eight, nine. Uh, I think. Maybe I'm wrong, but... It, he's in his late 70s. Yeah. And, uh But he apparently has still has the capacity to harm people. Yeah, women, I should say, because yes. I don't think he'd harm men. No. So, speaking of
1: speaking of people who should should have been in prison long before they were, Jeff Jeffrey Epstein? No. Well, yeah, but he's um that's a story for another day. I'm, I'm I'm not doing that story. Why don't we just launch right into this one? Okay. It's not clear just when Roy Mellinson's cross-country trail of rape and murder began. While the earliest documented crime by him is a rape in 1964, for which he served six years in prison, it's likely it started long before that. The final murder he's known to have committed was in 1988. In between, he's been convicted of two murders in California and Colorado, and indicted on one more in Louisiana, and he's a suspect in at least one other in Texas. Hmm. While it's not clear where he started, it's clear how it all ended. See what I did there? Yes. With the increased use of DNA identification to solve cold case murders. Uh huh.
0: Watch out, you freaking. Yeah, watch out, fellas.
1: If it weren't for DNA identification used as a crime solving tool, Melanson likely would have continued his life of rambling around the country, raping and murdering women until nature or something else ended his life. Even so, you may never have heard of him.
0: I haven't heard of him.
1: Okay. Well, (laughs) use of DNA to solve crimes is only about 35 years old and took some time to get off the ground. Melanson's lifestyle is as old as the hills. I get tired of hearing people say, oh, it's so dangerous now. You know, you never know who to trust people are out there killing. Guys have been doing this for a long time. And back in the good old days, you just didn't know about it. They just got away with it. It's a little mind-boggling how many serial killers have been brought to light through use of DNA testing. Uh The changes started slowly. In 1988, Colorado became the first state to create a DNA database for violent offenders, and I think 1988 was the first year, and it was in Britain that somebody was convicted yes. we using talked about DNA. That, okay. Yeah,
0: blood, whatever. By right, what by
1: was? Joseph Wamba. Yeah. Virginia was second in 1990. It wasn't until 1999 that every state had one, and that was with a federal push. Yeah, we t- It took a long time. Right, it did. It took a long time. The FBI links all states' databases to form the Combined DNA Index System, which you know as CODIS, which contained 12.1 million offender profiles as of December 2015. That's the most recent number I can find. This is all, by the way, according to a study, The Effects of DNA Databases on Crime by Jennifer Doliak that came out in 2016. And she goes into whether DNA collection and identification prevents crime but that's a discussion for a different day. Although I don't... I don't think it. Does. I don't really... Yeah, I don't think so either. They've just found different ways to do it. If somebody has a compulsion to kill people...
0: It's just like the death penalty doesn't prevent them. I mean... Right.
1: And the latest use of it, family DNA, is also taking off. Parabon Nano Labs, a forensic consulting company in Virginia that specializes in genetic genealogy and the one instrumental in helping nab the alleged Golden State Killer... Earlier this year said they identified 47 suspects in cold cases by, you know, uploading their old thing to find out, you know, if they're like Scottish or whatever and then yeah. it turns out they're related to a and serial killer. I don't killing. care about that. Right, whatever. About being Scottish or or somebody that. using your DNA to find a serial oh. killer. Well, we'll have to discuss that in another time too then.
0: Fuck the serial killer. I don't care if they're related to me.
1: Whatever. I, I don't care if a serial killer is, it's not that, oh, I don't want people to know a serial killer is no. related to me. I'm just, I, I, it's yes, too long okay. to go into it. Well, all those uses of DNA in crime solving, including identifying victims, are great. This story is about how, with the DNA testing pushed by the federal government, the chickens have come home to roost for many, many offenders. Mm-hmm. 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 This includes Roy Melanson who had to give a DNA sample in 2000. He was convicted of one of his many crimes, and we'll get to that, when the federal government required all violent offenders who were in prison give their DNA and be in the DNA database. Melanson made a lot of mistakes, some of which should have gotten him nailed even without DNA. Some of which, had it been now, he would have been in jail for a long, long time, but no one in the 1960s or 70s seemed to care much. If they had, Anita Andrews and Michelle Wallace, both of whom he killed in 1974, may still be alive. And Charlotte Sauerwin, I think that's how I pronounce it, and Pauline Klump, both of whom he killed in 1988, would most certainly be alive. And if the gap between 1974 and 88 seems like a long time... It's, he was in prison for those ah. years. He spent a lot of his life in prison, but every time he was out, he went on raping and killing well, sprees. You know, he had
0: to make up for lost time.
1: It's telling, really, how pervasive serial killers like him were and probably still are. The fact he killed at least four women the way he did, and probably many others, but you've likely never heard of him, or just heard of him in connection with, with Wallace or maybe Anderson Wallace because there was a forensic files what either dateline or 48 hours did something and I realized when I was researching this Charlotte Sauerwin there was a another one of those like B-level true crime shows I'd seen about it and didn't even realize it was him sometime in the past year. Oh, yeah. So there there are little pockets of information but for instance like the forensic files about Michelle Wallace which is probably his most famous murder doesn't mention his history. You really have to wonder how many people Roy Melanson killed and how many other Roy Melansons were out there who just haven't been caught. Oh,
0: there's lots. Of-
1: to catch him, it took probably one of the greatest biological breakthroughs in century, century, maybe of all time. And I know there's been a lot. I'm not a scientist, and I know there's a lot of big scientific things that have happened, But I, but I really believe... DNA testing has changed a lot of things, not just with crime. It's really mind-boggling. Look at all the cold cases, all the missing women, bodies tossed like garbage across the U.S., North America, and the rest of the world that would have never been solved if it hadn't been for DNA testing. I got most of the information for my story, by the way, from books by author Stephen Jackson, smooth talker and No Stone Unturned, both of which are about Roy Melanson. No Stone Unturned was written in 2006, and it was about the Michelle Wallace case. Smooth Talker came out, I think, in 2016, and it refers to that case and brings some other ones in. He's the only one who's done a comprehensive Roy Melanson history. And the easiest way to tell the stories is in chronological order. So I will. Okay. Roy Melanson was born February 13, 1937, in Bro Bridge, Louisiana. Sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong. It's, he had his first criminal conviction when he, before he was 20, a two-year suspended sentence for forgery and impersonating a federal officer in Corpus Christi, Texas. And you'll see he likes to toggle between Louisiana and Texas a lot. A few months later, he was arrested for burglary in Louisiana and sentenced to to four years in prison. He was out after a year, was arrested a couple more times for burglary in Texas, and went to prison for two more years. He got out in early 1961, at the age of 24, and in June he attempted a violent rape on a cousin in Pinehurst, Texas. He was arrested for that in November 1961. It's not clear what took so long to arrest him, and he was convicted a year later. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison, and served about seven, and was released in July 1970. By now, Roy was 33, but he hadn't grown out of his pesky proclivity for violence and crime. In August 1972, a woman in Orange, Texas, was on her way out to a club when she got a flat tire. Two men in a pickup truck, a young guy about 22, and Roy, who she described as stocky with a beer belly. (laughs) I always like it when they describe them like that, or they had a really pockmarked Mm -hmm. face or something. Stocky with a beer belly, They checked her spare tire, but it was flat, too. They offered to drive her to get it fixed. And I wondered if maybe they just told her it was flat or if they did something to it without her seeing, or something. Because, I mean, if the spare had been okay, were they just going to change the tire and go on their way? Uh. I mean, they had to have some game plan in mind here. Also, I just want to warn people, if you don't like graphic scenes of sexual violence, you may not want to listen for a minute or two. And I'm not going to warn you every time, but there will be some in this podcast today. Anyway, as they were driving, Roy said he needed to change trucks and drove to a house and left the other guy off. Roy put the tire, the spare, in a different truck and he, the woman, and the tire drove to a secluded area where Roy lunged at her. She said he acted like she expected his advance, quote unquote, and he told her he was going to fuck her. She resisted, but the more she fought, the more violent he became, all the time describing what he was going to do to her. He punched her in the face with his closed fist, twisted her arm behind her back, pinned her down, pulled her pants off one leg, kind of a signature, it turns out, with him. But I think a lot of rapists do that, because why take off the whole pants yeah. when you can just... Um, and he sodomized her and then forced her to give him a blowjob. Yeah. Gross, I know, after this. I don't know. know. He also forced her to perform, quote, other sex acts, though it doesn't say what they were. He assaulted her for an hour, telling her all the time to respect his wishes. After he finished, he just sat there, and so she tried to humor him, hoping it would save her life. She made him laugh, as well as offered him some tissue to clean himself off with. After Mm. he was done with the tissue, he threw it out the window, as well as her torn underwear. Mm. He let her put her pants back on, and he apologized. He drove her to a gas station, arranged for someone to fix the tire, then drove her back to her car and changed the tire.
0: How weird.
1: Um, when he was done, he apologized again. When she got back into her own car, someone she knew drove by and asked if she was okay. Roy took off, but his victim had memorized his license number and gave it to the cops. Yes. They also were able to find the tissue and the torn underwear. Yes. So she gets an A for being a smart victim. She was. She told the story during Melanson's preliminary hearing on the case. The judge bound the case over for trial. Roy made bail, and he skipped town. There's no record of him raping anyone for the next few years, but my guess is, given his behavior with this woman, that he did. They just didn't report it. Yeah. It seemed like he was pretty comfortable doing what he was doing, and it also seemed like he did it pretty regularly regularly you know, any time he was out of jail. He did have a girlfriend or at least some kind of female companion who became pregnant with his child, and the two of them rambled around Texas and Louisiana. Then came 1974, Roy's big year. In February of that year, he was accused of raping a 17-year-old girl who was at a Texas gas station looking for gas. And that was during the gas shortage. I don't know those of you who are old enough to remember the lines at gas stations There was no gas at the station, but Roy told the girl he knew where they could find some. And guess what? He was lying. He abducted her, raped her, took her to Louisiana, where he raped her many times over a period of several days. She somehow eventually talked him into letting her go. And we'll go into more of this later. But one of the reasons she was able to ID him is because he'd shown her his driver's license. And you'll find out more about that later. But according to author Steve Jackson... Whose books I um, got this information from, she quote unquote had a nervous breakdown and was sent to psychiatric hospital, and so much, I guess, for the rape case. Melonson, pregnant girlfriend in tow, fled the area. He ended up ditching his girlfriend in Tucson, Arizona in March, so a month later. By July 10th, we know he was in Napa, California. On July 10th, 1974, Anita Andrews, 51, was working in the bar she owned with her sister Muriel in Napa, Fagiani's. It had belonged to their father, Nicola Fagiani, but he was dead. They inherited it. They wanted to sell it. It was in a grungy, blue-collar part of town. They didn't particularly like owning it, but they had to keep it open 24 hours a week in order to maintain the liquor license because they wanted to sell it with a liquor license. license. That makes sense. Anita also worked at a psych hospital as a secretary, and when she got to the bar, she'd always take off her work-high heels, put on flats, and then at the end... Of the night when she left, she would change out of the flats into her high heels. She was very fastidious with her habits. She always parked her tan 1967 Cadillac on the same spot out front, and the local police were good about checking at night to make sure the front door was padlocked. If they drove by and her car was gone, they'd make sure the padlock was set almost every night. On this night, there were four men in the bar, three rowdy drunk guys at one end, and one guy the other guys didn't recognize at the other end. The guy was smoking and flirting with Anita, and he also kept his back to the other guys and seemed to be shielding his face so they wouldn't see it. At one point, one of the drunk guys got pissed off about that and yelled at him, Hey, asshole, what's your problem? (laughs) The drunk guy's friend, David Luce, made the guy stop yelling at him, and then he went over to the stranger, shook his hand, and said they weren't really trying to cause him any trouble. You know, his Mm -hmm. friend was drunk. He says he looked in the guy's eyes, The guy had blonde thinning hair and a southern drawl, though he didn't say much, and seemed that he didn't really want to engage with David. It was about 9 p.m., and Anita told the drunk guys it was time to leave. Luce asked if the stranger was her boyfriend, and she said yes, but he wasn't sure if he really was or if she was just saying that to get those guys out of the bar. But she had talked to people, including her adult daughter of a boyfriend, a freeloader who worked for the carnival or was a welder, and had run up a four hundred dollar phone Sounds bill
0: like a great guy. Yeah,
1: and had run up a four hundred dollar phone bill at her apartment and she was gonna kick him out. The next day, Anita didn't show up for work at the psychiatric hospital and her work called her mother, who called Muriel, Anita's sister. Muriel went to Anita's apartment, but neither she nor the car were there. She went to Fagiani's and the car wasn't out front, but the door was unlocked. Mm. The usual police drive-by would have caught it, but that didn't happen the night before. It was a rare occasion it didn't happen, but on this night it didn't. Muriel went inside and found her sister dead in the storeroom. Blood was everywhere. One leg of Anita's pants were pulled off. One of her high heels was on. The other one wasn't. There was blood everywhere, as I said. It was later determined she had probably been hit on the back of the head with a bottle. There were shards of glass in her hair, which was matted with blood. Mm. And then she was attacked. She'd been punched in the face several times and stabbed at least 13 times with a screwdriver that they found in a sink. The crime scene investigator said the bar top and everything was clean like she had cleaned up for the night. It was wiped down and all the stools were tucked under the bar except for one at the end. Mm. With an ashtray with one cigarette butt in front of it and a shot glass in front of it. The investigator bagged all of it as potential evidence. Even though it was 1974. Yes, well, fingerprints. Mm-hmm. There was also a crumpled towel beneath the counter in the storeroom where Anita's body was found. And it didn't have any blood on it, but it was crumpled and looked used and didn't look like it belonged there. So the investigator bagged that, too. They found her other shoe beneath the bar, and they believe she was hit on the head while she was getting ready to leave and then dragged into the storeroom. Mm. Her car keys, her watch, and her purse were all missing. There were also bloody footprints from a man's shoe on the stairs to the upstairs office. They found an empty cash box up there. He had dropped some coins, and those were on the stairs. David Luce, one of the three drunk guys, heard what had happened, and he went to the bar while police were still there to tell them about the guy the night before. He said they'd gone to dinner after when they left the bar around 9.30, and when they walked back an hour later, Anita's Cadillac wasn't there. He he knew her like they were acquaintances. They believe the man had at least attempted to rape her, Police did, but they couldn't find any evidence of a sexual assault. In in other words, he probably did not leave any semen. Police figured the stranger at the bar could be a suspect.
0: Wow, Hmm. maybe. Gee, I didn't even think of that.
1: David Luce and his friends said they thought he was just a drifter. But to others, he sounded kind of like the um, carny she had described she was dating, or the welder she had said she was dating. Steve Jackson writes... As the detectives chase each lead, they were unaware that the drifter, welder, carnival worker all might be one and the same man. Maureen says, why the fuck not? (laughs) Why wouldn't they? I know. Why wouldn't you say maybe? No, she's dating three different guys. Yeah. Including this drifter who just wandered into the (laughs) bar. And He writes, it was in part because her daughter, who was 23, didn't tell police immediately that the last time she spoke to her mother... Her mother had said she was fed up with her boyfriend, a mechanic for a traveling carnival, because of the phone bill he'd run up. And he left the tools in the back of her Cadillac, and she wasn't giving them back until he paid the ah. bill. I'm not sure why police not knowing that part would keep them from wondering if they were all the same guy. Yes, they have their heads up their ass.
0: A, no, I'm sorry. I shouldn't.
1: I know. That. I know. Especially because Anita was a private person and a lot of people hadn't seen they hadn't seen this boyfriend and she didn't talk about him a lot. People were just aware there was some guy recently that she had been dating. Anyway, the cops canvassed the neighborhood, asking people if they'd seen anybody strange or this guy or anything. They checked, checked similar rapes. They checked possible suspects. Even Dave Luce and his drunk friends were suspect. There was another guy, um, his last name was Beal, who they thought possibly was a suspect. There was another guy, a friend of hers, Steve, who she was supposed to go out with di- to dinner with that night and had begged off because she wanted to go work at the bar instead and get some of the hours that they needed to get in. He was a good friend of hers, not a boyfriend, and they thought he was a suspect, but everybody's story checked out. About a month later, because information traveled so slowly way back then in the snail mail 70s, they found out her credit card had been used before midnight on July 10th, on the night she was killed, at a gas station in Sacramento. Ah. That was back when guys filled your gas tank for you. Yep. And the attendant noticed the guy had a bloody towel on his lap. <laughs> and there was a purse in the back seat, but the driver, despite having a bloody towel on his lap, seemed cool, calm, and collected. So the attendant didn't think much of it. I guess he thought enough to remember it, but not to, like, ask the guy, Hey, dude, what's with the well, bloody towel on your somebody The driver also gave him a credit card with a woman's name on it and said it was his wife's. He signed A.E. Andrews for the gas. They never found the Cadillac, and after two months of investigation, figured they'd hit a dead end. Oh, well, shoot. They stored away the evidence, a cigarette butt, shot glass, broken glass from the bottle she was hit with, the towel that was under the counter in the storeroom that did not have blood, the murder weapon, and the gas receipt copy. Hmm. Meanwhile, her sister Muriel locked up Fagiani's, leaving it just as it was. She vowed it would stay that way until her sister's killer was found or until a suspect was found. Evidence from the bar would be preserved that way. And
0: did she? You're going to have to find okay. out.
1: Okay. I'm a mystery writer, so I, I like to know. keep things in suspense. Okay. Okay. It's unclear where Melanson went after that, because obviously that was Roy Melanson, for those of you, I mean, I don't the think... The drifter? It, oh, it was? I don't think there's anyone in our audience I need to spell things and out for. And that man was me. <laughs> <laughs> it's unclear where he went after that, but by the end of August, he was in Colorado, Michelle Wallace, a 25 year old budding photographer and avid outdoors woman, had returned to the trailhead August 30th after a hike in the Gunnison Mountains in south central Colorado with her dog, a black German Shepherd no,
0: doggy. named Okie. Oh, no.
1: When two guys. Oh, I
0: saw a thing about Yeah, okay.
1: okay, you know, right. I Everybody okay, Michelle okay. Is pro- story. Yeah. yeah. When two guys drove up in a broken down car, they offered her a ride and she accepted. The driver, whose name was Chuck, said a tire was going flat, but they could probably make it to the town Gothic, where Michelle lived. Um, she and Oki got in the back. Seconds later, there was a loud clang, and Chuck said a rock had hit the oil pan, and now there was a hole in it, and oil wow, was leaking. All sorts
0: of stuff going on. It was a
1: clunker. Michelle said that when they got to the town, she could give them a ride um, so they could get the car fixed and go where they were going. When they got to her car, a red Mazda, little Mazda station wagon. I don't know if you guys remember those little red Mazda station. Mm -hmm. Michelle and the other guy, and yep, if you haven't guessed it, it's Roy. Got in the front seat, and Oki the dog, and Mm -hmm. Chuck got in the back seat. Oki liked Chuck, licking his face and drooling all over him. He said later, Roy and Michelle were. Did you say Oki was a black German
0: shepherd? Yes, he is. Yeah, was. I was trying to picture.
1: Yeah, he's very cute. But Chuck couldn't hear much of the conversation from the front seat, probably because Hokey was all over him. Michelle dropped Chuck off at a bar he'd asked to be dropped off at, and Roy asked her if he could get a ride to his truck. Chuck thought that was weird because for the past couple days he'd been driving Roy around, and it didn't seem like Roy had any transportation. Duh. Roy told Chuck he'd be back, but Chuck never saw Roy again. Or at least not for a couple of decades. Ooh, there's so much suspense in this story. And no one ever saw Michelle again. What about Oki? Okay. You will find out. When Michelle didn't call her mother Sunday night like she said she would, her mother on Monday called the Gunnison Sheriff's Department and convinced them something had happened to Michelle. Given Michelle's age and how those things usually go, I'm surprised they immediately took action. I
0: know. It's weird sometimes how they do. And...
1: Because usually it's like, oh, she's 25. Yeah, she wants to You know, missing. it's been two days. Mm. She went for a hike. By the next day, they were searching for what? wait for it, would become the largest, largest search in Colorado history. It's
0: always the largest or the I most know. I know, but I have to believe
1: since 1974 there have been bigger ones. I think they have. They At also, that
0: time, up to that time it right,
1: was. Right, right. They also couldn't find her red Mazda station wagon or Ogie. Her roommate... Who had been away that weekend gave them a hairbrush and her eyeglasses when the detective asked for something in the house that only Michelle had used. The detective was only 24, and it looks like I neglected to put his name in here, but Aww. it was his first major case, and he did everything by the book, including packaging and sealing the hairbrush and the eyeglasses. People called police to say they'd seen a dog matching Oki's description wandering around August 31st, but police couldn't find the dog. This was, was just he a few crying? days. Later, they didn't say. About a week later, Chuck was listening to the radio with the other ranch hands he worked with when he heard about the missing girl on the news. He knew it was the girl with the red station wagon when he heard the description of her, the car, and the dog. He called the sheriff's department and told them about it, including the fact he'd waited until the bar closed that night for his new buddy Roy to come back. He told them he believed Roy was working for a... It says it's in the book a cattle rancher, but I think it... Might have been a sheep rancher unless they ranched both things. Anyway, Roy's toolbox had been in Chuck's car, but he didn't come back for it. Um, He was
0: always leaving his I know, I know. He probably stole them.
1: I know. The next day, a rancher, Bob Niccoli, who lived 10 miles away in Crested Butte, called the Sheriff's Department and told them he'd shot a dog (gasps) that matched Oki's description. The dog had been chasing his cattle September 4th. And by Colorado law, you're allowed to shoot a dog if it's bothering your livestock. He buried the dog after he shot it, but he saved its collar. A deputy and Michelle's cousin, who lived in Denver, went to see, and sure enough, it was Oki's collar. Oh,
0: little Oki. He just wanted to play with the collar. Well, he was probably upset because his mommy was gone, too.
1: It just cemented the fact that something bad had happened to Michelle. She would never be separated from Oki. Several people said they'd seen a slick-talking guy hiking with a teenage girl a few days before Michelle's disappearance, and the teenage girl was very subdued, but the girl was too young to be Michelle, so they discounted it as somebody different. On September 11th, they tracked down the rancher Roy had worked for, Frank Spadafora. He said Melanson didn't own a vehicle, and he'd fired him a couple weeks before. It turns out Melanson met Spadafora in Grand Junction in a bar. Spatafora said he needed someone to shoot coyotes that were killing his sheep that were up in the mountains on their summer range, and Melanson, sa- Melanson said that was right up his alley. Oh, he could I bet do it. it was. But rather than work once he got to the area, he started hanging around with Lucille Bur- Burton, who had five daughters. They were summering in a cabin there while Mr. Burton worked back home in Pueblo. Mm-hmm. Melanson told the family he spoke fluent French, and apparently had them enthralled. At one point, he took a young friend of one of the girls, it doesn't say how young, for a horseback ride, and when they came back, she was very quiet and subdued. Mm -hmm. Melanson particularly liked 14-year-old Sally Burton, and he was spending so much time with her and the other Burtons that Spadafore fired him. That was August 17th, so two weeks before Michelle disappeared. Melanson moved into the cabin with the six Burton women when he was fired. Those women are morons. Oh, it gets better. A week later, when the family was due to return to Pueblo, Melinson talked Sally's mother into allowing the fourteen year old to stay behind with him. He kept her a prisoner in the cabin and if she didn't do what he wanted, he'd make like he was gonna hit her and she'd cringe and he'd laugh. Now, here's something that really bugs me about Steve Jackson's book. I'm sure everyone hearing this is already a little appalled. And I think when I was reading the book, when I first read it months and months ago, I texted you about this, too. Jackson writes, quote, when he wanted sex, he demanded sex. If she protested that she wasn't in the mood, he got angry and insisted. She soon learned if if she didn't go along, he would force her anyway. And so, afraid of his temper, she acquiesced. So I want to point out that while well, Jackson did mention earlier in the book, I didn't say it here because you guys can do math, but earlier when Melanson convinced the mom to let Sally stay behind with him, you know, Jackson mentions that Melanson's 23 years older, but he never points out that she's a child and that any sex is not sex but rape. And even if she wasn't
0: a child, the, what he just describes is rape.
1: I, I, I know uh, it is, oh, well, but but I'm talking particular about the fact yes. that she's four. Teen years old and it's really annoying and when i was first reading the book uh, months and months ago over the winter i kept waiting for him to make that point and he never did and the book was written in 2016 not in 1974 you look at
0: headlines right now
1: yeah i know they say underaged women instead of right you know. right on august 28 he must have gotten tired of sally because he put her on a bus for pueblo that's when he met chuck And he met him in a bar near the bus station. That seems where most of Roy's male relationships are forged in bars. Chuck was a Vietnam vet who worked on ranches and had a drinking problem. He was also a little gullible. Poor Chuck. Roy told him he was a rancher and was having trouble with a bear bothering his horses and wondered if Chuck knew anyone who had a gun who could help him out. Well, sure as shooting, Chuck had a gun. Chuck and Roy got in Chuck's car and went and got Chuck's gun then went to the Burton's cabin, but by now it was night, so Roy said they'd have to look for the bear in the morning, even though aren't bears nocturnal? Um, Also, Chuck noticed there were no horses anywhere, (laughs) Um, but they went to bed (laughs) or drank all night, I'm not sure which. And the next day, Melanson said that he'd rented his horses to a guy who hadn't returned them and who owed him money, and he lived in a cabin way up in Kebler Pass and wanted Chuck to give him a ride up there so they could get the money and the horses. And Chuck said, sure, even though Chuck's car was a real piece of crap, um, they threw Melanson's toolbox in the car and went for a ride, stopping to buy more beer. Mm, They kept driving around through the mountains on all these old logging roads. Chuck's car broke down a few times, but he said Roy was very intent on exploring all the dirt logging roads up the mountain. And remember, this was a few days before Michelle... Met them. About 10 miles up, Roy told him to pull over, and there was kind of a ridge and a drop off. Roy asked for the rifle, and Chuck gave it to him, thinking Roy had seen something, maybe the bear he wanted to shoot. Chuck, meanwhile, walked over to the edge of the ridge in front of Roy to kind of see what he'd been looking for, and when he turned around, Roy had a weird look on his Ah. face and said, Never mind, and they got back in the car. Um, Chuck wondered later if Roy was going to shoot him and yeah, then thought the better of it. And take
0: his car, maybe. Yeah,
1: and take his car, but the car was so crappy. That <laughs> I guess it was. They went back to town for more beer, and shortly after that, they met Michelle. The day after Michelle was last seen, Roy was in downtown Gunnison, Colorado, driving a red Mazda station wagon and buying new clothes at Penny. Then he drove to Pueblo, 160 miles east, and called up the Burtons. It turns out Mom and Dad were out of town, and the girls were home alone.
0: Uh, The older
1: sister, Becky, was in charge, and she didn't want Roy to come over. Smart girl, Becky. But but he came over anyway. Uh, According to Steve Jackson, he, quote, spent the night with Sally. Gross. Uh, Sally later said he had new clothes and all sorts of camping equipment and a cool camera. And one of the more chilling things about this case that you may have seen if you've seen any of the true crime things on this, Sally took a photo of him lying on the couch smirking as one of her friends sat in front of him on the couch reading a newspaper. It's a very creepy photo, and it's the cover of um, Steve Jackson's book, Smooth Talker. On September 3rd, that was the day Michelle's mother reported her missing, Melanson pawned the camera and a lens, signing the pawn ticket with his real name.
0: Uh, Uh,
1: On September 8th, he pawned the sleeping bag and backpack, I guess it was easier to pawn things back then, and headed to Oklahoma, where he met another poor gullible sap in a bar. Thurman Wilder. Thurman drove a white Cadillac and said he was looking for work as a heavy equipment operator. Well, wouldn't you know it? Roy had a friend with a big construction firm in Pueblo who was looking for workers who could drive heavy equipment. Melanson would take him up there, but he had to bring the Mazda in for repairs. So Thurman let Melanson put all his stuff in the Cadillac, and they took off in the Cadillac for Colorado. On September 12th, Someone reported a suspicious white Cadillac prowling around a Pueblo high school. The caller thought they might be selling drugs. Hmm. No, no problem. It was just a pedophile and his moron friend. When a cop asked them what they were doing, Melanson said they were waiting for his friend Sally Burton to give her a ride home. They gave the cop their licenses, and he went back to the cruiser to run them, but was told the computer was down. Which seems weird in 1974, but I guess they... Anyway, he made them wait... And lo and behold, it turns out Melanson was wanted for rape in Texas. But while all that was going on, Melanson and Thurman and the Cadillac all I'm took off. I'm
0: surprised they knew that.
1: All well, took off. Yeah, me too. Not to sound like
0: 1974 well, they share, was a...
1: Well, they share warrants. So while that was going on, Melanson and Thurman and the Cadillac took off while the cop was running the plates. And he had to wait because the computer was down and everything. And they just drove away. They found them a few hours later at a motel and arrested roy and poor old thurman thurman not a total dummy told the police they could search the car and they found michelle's vehicle registration for the uh. mazda her driver's license and other cards um you know not credit cards but like her auto club yeah. card and stuff like that camping equipment a dog backpack Aww. and a mazda toolkit In Melanson's pants, which they searched later on him, they found the two pawn tickets and Mazda car keys. Mm -hmm. One of the guys recalled to be on the lookout for the red Mazda, and as I said, Gunnison was about 160 miles to the west. They called Gunnison and found out there was also a worn out for Melanson for check fraud. Uh. Wilder, again maybe not as dumb as he was a day or two before, told the cops Roy had a red Mazda that he left in Oklahoma. Roy, though, said that was nuts. He didn't even know what a Mazda looked like. Hmm. They found the car parked a few blocks from the bar where Roy well, and I'm Thurman had met. they at. found it. He just left it there, yeah. You know. I know, but I'm... Well, yeah. you know, he's got all the stuff with him. The registration, oh, the keys, true. and, you know, it's not like he's... As I said, he did a lot of things that should have gotten him arrested way before DNA. Both of the guys told the cops they'd hung out with the Burtons, and Roy denied, though, that he'd, quote, had sex with Sally because, as Jackson writes... That would land him in more hot water for having sex with a minor. No shit. He in other words, her, raping a way. child, sexually assaulting a minor. Ugh. Again, I want to point out she was fourteen. He was thirty seven, so it's not having sex in any way, shape or form. I think
0: some people, especially male people, still don't understand that a fourteen year old is No, a they child.
1: don't. Sally talked to the cops and said Roy did have a red car and yes, that they had had sex. Roy told the cops he didn't know Michelle, but may she may have been one of a group of hippies who'd shown up at the cabin, but then moved on. A Gunnison detective came down to Pueblo to grill Roy, but Roy said he'd only talk to the FBI. The cops figured he'd, he wanted to talk to the FBI because the only charge they could talk to him about was bringing a stolen car over state lines. And so if he was charged with that, then maybe everybody would just forget about the Michelle thing. That's the only reason they could figure out he might have wanted to talk to the FBI. So they brought in FBI agent Lad Scroggins, Mm. who, after hours of grilling Roy, got Roy to say he'd met Michelle in a bar, but um, left and she was still there. Detective Fry, Steve Fry, from Gunnison... He brought Roy back up to Gunnison, but Roy wasn't talking except to say, what are you guys going to do when she shows back up? I'll be in the clearer." Meanwhile, they found out he was a suspect in three rapes in Texas and indicted for another one. That was the one in February, the 17-year-old who'd had the nervous breakdown that he'd skipped bail on. In Louisiana, it turns out, he was wanted for a st- series of strangulation murders, although we never find out much about this. I think they were looking at him as a suspect, but there's no detail and I looked online to see if I could find more and there's I have a little tiny bit at the end but not to disappoint anyone but they brought in Chuck to ID him you know his buddy Chuck the gullible vietnam guy, and they were walking Roy down the hall and Chuck said that's him the son of a bitch what did you do to that poor girl and Roy said I didn't do nothing and then they went after each other, and the cops had Ooh. to separate them. A week later, they had the film from the camera developed. They picked it up from the pawn shop. The photos were of scenes from the camping trip. There was one of Michelle. She must have had somebody else take with some other people. Her hair and braids. Yes, I've seen that. Yeah.
0: That's, that's what I remembered about her. Yeah. Yep. There
1: were a few of Oki with his little doggy backpack on. The last photo on the roll was one of Roy lying on the couch, smirking behind the girl reading the newspaper. Uh...
0: Yes, I remember that
1: from whatever I saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they the showed that out. on forensic files, yeah, I think. forensic files. For me. So yeah, they had a lot of stuff against Roy, mm-hmm. but they didn't have Michelle's remains or body, as they say. So the DA didn't want to charge him. Oh, fucking
0: are you fucking serious?
1: Yes, I am. <laughs> a few weeks after Michelle disappeared, her mother Maggie killed herself. Aww. Overdosed on barbiturates. Michelle's father in part blamed the Gunnison County Sheriff's Department. And couldn't understand why they didn't arrest Melanson, and frankly, neither can I. Mm. I understand when prosecutors don't want an acquittal and are afraid they don't have enough to convict. But we've seen many convicted on much less remains or no remains. Lots of times when people are perfectly innocent and there's no other, I there's know. no evidence against them. I know. Since they weren't strongly investigating the case anymore, what did they have to lose? I mean, it's not I like know. we're going to keep investigating. They just kind of dropped the case. And we know at least two other women, probably more, would still be alive if the prosecutor had just had the balls to move forward on Melis- Melanson in 1974. The deputy D- DA, Lynn French, said, There's no way we can file charges without finding her body or evidence that she met foul play.
0: Let's see, her car being abandoned, her yeah. dog being a- abandoned, somebody else having her fucking car Him having a photo key. of
1: himself on her camera, him having all her belongings, him having a record that they knew of, of previous that's acts. Even if they couldn't bring those up in the trial, it seems to me that they could have... That's evidence. And show. you'll okay. find out later there's kind of more, too. Melanson was tried in 1975 for fraud and Gunnison, charged with breaking into the car of another woman, Alice Moss, in Schofield Park, the same place he and Chuck had met Michelle. He stole checks from Alice's car and forged them. That's how he bought the clothes at JCPenney. Ah. Unfortunately, the day before the trial... The victim, Alice, got a call at her home in Boulder, which is a six-hour drive away, from a woman who said she was the Gunnison County Court clerk and Allison didn't need to attend court the next day. So Alice stayed home. Mellison was acquitted because the witness didn't show up to testify against him. With that out of the way, he was sent to Texas to be tried on rape charges, and I believe it's never proven or anything, but I believe it was probably Sally Burton or someone who did him that favor. And Called the woman and told her she didn't have to show up. I mean, the court didn't call her and tell yeah, her not I, to show no, up. No, I understand.
0: So, you, it you seems to me you though, could still. There's evidence conv- of checks yes. fraud whether or not somebody right. testifies.
1: Right, I know. I know. But, whatever. It's, it's like they weren't trying that hard. I know. I know nobody, there was nobody, in a lot of cases, there is somebody who says, I am going to fucking get this guy no matter what. And at this point in this case, nobody, yeah. w- th- that person did not exist. With that out of the way, Roy was sent to Texas to be tried on rape charges from the case he'd skipped out on in February of 1974, the 17-year-old who'd been looking for gas at the gas Aww. station. The Texas Ranger who'd been trying to find Mellison since he skipped out on bail also believed he'd beat to death a woman whose body had been found in a field in that same area. Melanson was the last person seen with her, but they had no evidence against him on it. The 17-year-old testified that Melanson raped her several times over the course of a few days, both in Texas and Louisiana, but he couldn't ejaculate, which made him mad and more violent toward her. And that also makes me think like Anita Andrews when they said they couldn't find evidence of sexual assault. Although there was that towel, that crumpled towel with no blood on it, so you kind of wonder. um, But anyway, the whole time he had the girl, he kept her pantyhose tied around her neck and would tighten them and threaten to kill her if she began to struggle or make too much noise. She realized that she was going to live. She needed to somehow placate him, so she told him she'd tell her mother she ran away and she'd be believed because there were problems at home. Melanson, though, was acting like maybe they could be a couple. Ugh. He showed her his driver's license, remember I mentioned that earlier, and said he was the uncle of a girl she went to school with and that he'd been stalking her, though I'm sure he didn't use those words since they came into use in the 90s and this was 1974. Yes. He let her go, but he told her he'd kill her if she told anyone, but she told anyway.
0: Good
1: girl. And she testified to all that in court in 1975. He was found guilty and was automatically sentenced to life in prison under Texas's three strikes law. Well, thank God he's going to be in prison for life and never hurt another woman, right? Mm, mm, Well, mm, not so mm, fast, mm, you simply optimistic people. While Roy was sitting in prison in Texas plotting all the women he'd raped and killed when he got out and also planning how he was going to get out... And one thing I want to point out is something we see a lot. Once a serial rapist with violent tendencies gets caught a couple times because his victims have the strength to testify against him, he says, gee, I'm not going to let that happen again. And victims stop living to testify against him. But anyway, while he was sitting in prison, something happened in Colorado in 1979. A hiker, Thomas Colts, was walking on an old logging road near Kebler Pass, the same road Roy and his two-day friend Chuck had been driving around on when he found woman's hair in the uh, middle of the that's road that's what
0: i remember this way. yeah that yes. i think that's
1: what most people would remember yes. if they see it was a full head of hair in two braids ah oh, yes i remember it just like michelle wallace had been wearing in that oh. photo when she was last seen he brought it to the sheriff's office they went up there and searched around but couldn't find anything in 1985 so this is 6 years later rookie and they never and they couldn't even say it was michelle because Okay, it's just somebody's hair, you know. In 1985, rookie detective Kathy Young, who was 33 at the time, asked to work the cold case. Her boss, Sheriff Rick Murdy, and the new DA, not the one who didn't want to prosecute earlier, Mike Stern, thought the case was solvable even without a body. And they had that hair now, too, so maybe they could find her remains. One thing that struck young when she started looking over the files is that the hair was found in the same place that Chuck said Melanson had told him to drive that day. Hmm. Because she went through all the files. Because she was paying fucking yes, attention. Yes. Another thing she found was a report that another inmate, back when Roy was being held on the check charge right after Michelle disappeared, Um, another inmate said Roy told him he'd kill Michelle, and I know, jailhouse snitch, blah, blah, blah. Roy told him he was glad he wouldn't be around in the spring when y'all would start digging around for her. And the inmate also, the inmate at the time, asked the detective if they'd found the dog. And the detective said, yes, but the dog was dead. And the inmate said, Roy said he didn't kill the dog. And I don't know how much of the dog thing was publicized. I don't know. Right. And it's not it's not clear what the public knew about Oki. And it's not clear when the conversation between the jailhouse snitch and Roy took place. You know, it's possible they didn't know about Oki. But the inmate also said Roy said Michelle had extensive dental work, including a gold back molar, and he said Roy must have been real close to her to notice that. Another inmate had also told the same detective, I think it was Steve Fry, a similar story, including the part about the dental work. And I don't think that's necessarily something that was made public. And that was back right after she had disappeared when they were holding Roy on the yes. check fraud. They were holding him on the check fraud charge, hoping they, something would come up while they had him in jail.
0: And yet they didn't. And yet pay things attention. are coming just up..
1: Shit. I know yet there are things coming up that, you know, just the fact that Chuck had told them about this driver on this logging road, I'm not sure if the most extensive, extensive search in Colorado history. Included that. It's amazing, and I'm
0: not. I'm not trying to like criticize them any search, right? But it's amazing how many times they do these huge searches, and then the remains show up. In the area or right near, right. It. It's, I mean, it's not. I think easy it's some some of the
1: nature of how searches are found. Like I'll talk about it a little later, okay. but like when there's roads and paths, especially in heavy woods, they only go a certain.
0: Well, the the thing, yeah, it's not but, easy. But I mean, anyway, right.
1: Know, but it's just it's just weird. The author Steve Jackson points out that while many say Roy was a slick talker, it turns out he also had a motor mouth, and that's one of the things that ultimately helped do him in. This Mike was going to do me in. Yeah, my question, though, is, and we were just talking about this, why didn't they pay more attention in 1974 and 75, including the big clues to the location from Chuck Matthews and the inmates? It would have saved a lot of grief and lives. So anyway, Roy kept busy in prison. He beat a young inmate to death. Ah! The guy was black, and when I was reading this, I'm like, why is Jackson even pointing that out? But then later um, it comes up. But you know how I hate when somebody's ethnicity or gender is mentioned and there's no reason to do it. Like in the check fraud case, he says the female prosecutor convinced the jury to acquit him. And I'm like, (laughs) okay. He was also busy being a jailhouse lawyer and somehow got his habitual offender status overturned. It's not clear if he did this himself or had help from another attorney. So in March 1988... Roy Melanson was free from prison. He was 51 now, and he headed to Port Arthur, Texas, where he moved in with the mother of his son and her current boyfriend. That's the family he left in Tucson 14 years before, yes. right before he killed Anita Andrews. They were renting an apartment from a woman named Pauline Clump, also 51, on July 2nd, she went to the apartment to pick up a TV she had loaned them, and she mentioned she needed help with an air conditioner at her house. No,
0: Pauline, no. Well,
1: Roy offered to help, that's he the did. kind of guy he was. He'd been out of prison for three months at this point. The next day, Pauline's car was found parked in front of a grocery store, the TV still in the back seat. No one could find her, though, and they couldn't find Roy. Four days later... In Livingston Parish, Louisiana, 260 miles east of Port Arthur, 24-year-old Charlotte Sorwin disappeared. She'd indicated to her boyfriend, Vince Lejeune, who was also 24, that she was going to go up to some land where they'd been planning their dream house. They'd been talking, arguing a little about clearing it, but that was expensive, and Vince wanted to wait, and Charlotte was impatient. She wanted the dream house, she wanted to get married, blah, blah, blah. She'd met a guy who told her he could do it cheaply, no. and she was going to meet him up there.
0: Oh no! And this is
1: four days after Pauline Clump disappeared. Well, by the way, yeah. You know. And this is one that I saw on another true crime show, and didn't even—I think it could have been, maybe it was before I read the Roy Melanson book. I didn't real even until I was doing this realized that this was one of them. When Vince got home from work that night, Charlotte wasn't home. Her little 380 Beretta gun was missing, too, which wasn't normal. She didn't really like the gun. Vince thought maybe she'd taken the gun as a precaution, since she was going to meet a strange man in the middle of nowhere. And, spoiler, if she did, it didn't work. Poor Charlotte. Vince started to worry as night fell, and she didn't come home or call. He started asking friends, and one said he'd seen her. his friend Ricky, Said he'd seen her talking to a strange guy at the laundromat, and he overheard it was about getting the land cleared. Her friend Sheila said Charlotte had told her she was talking to a guy about getting the land cleared, too. And Sheila suggested maybe Vince wanted to go out to the land and see if Charlotte was there. When he got there, her car was parked on the grass, and the stereo and speakers were missing. He popped the trunk, but it was empty. He saw a car down the road pulling into a driveway, and he jumped into his truck, put it in reverse, and in his haste to go talk to the person, he accidentally backed into her car. The guy was a local restaurant owner that he knew, and he told the guy he needed him to call the police because, you know, pre-cell phone era. Around 2 a.m., after they brought search dogs to the scene and everything, they found her body. Charlotte had been raped, beaten, strangled, and killed by her throat being slit. With little to go on, police targeted Vince as a suspect a Aww. process that would continue for two decades, Jesus and Christ. one of the things was like because he had backed into her car, so they thought he was mad and you know backed into her car, and all these things. They hadn't been able to find the mysterious guy from the laundromat and thought Vince's friend Ricky made it maybe made it up to protect Vince. The cop said the killer had to be local because he'd taken the time to steal the stereo, knowing he wouldn't be caught. That's great police work. They also thought, because the area was kind of remote, and you'd have to know, I hear this a lot on TV shows, you'd have to know where it was to get there. But I'm sure she told the guy where it was, or led him there, or drove him there, or, or even drove him there, or something, who knows. The cops started pitting him against his friends lying about things each had said about the other, and oh, implying to Vince God. that maybe Ricky had killed Charlotte. In fact, they had Vince so convinced that they kind of thought Ricky, Vince did it, but maybe Ricky did it, that Vince once almost shot Ricky. He actually put a gun to his head when behind Ricky when Ricky wasn't looking, but he couldn't pull the trigger. Oh. But it ruined their friendship. missions <laughs> mostly planted by police, ruined Vince's life in the town he'd grown up in and lived in, but he stayed in the town. He married another girl on the rebound and had a daughter, And they split up, and though she was a heavy drug user and alcoholic, he couldn't get visitation because he was a suspected murderer. And he finally got custody of her and another daughter that another woman had later. His ex even called the cops and said he'd confessed to killing Charlotte, which meant more hounding from him. There was one cop in particular who didn't retire until the mid-2000s, who just who told everybody in town that he knew Vince didn't and he was going to get him I mean I can see why they would think that but it kind of keeps you from looking at other people because yes, he does. was an immediate no, suspect I'm not, I'm
0: not saying I, I couldn't correct, find but I can understand why they would right
1: must- the year after Pauline Clump disappeared and Charlotte Sourwine was murdered 1989 Roy was arrested for burglary in Kentucky. He got away, but police found him in Montana, staying with a woman who owned a ranch, who he'd somehow convinced that he, too, was a wealthy ranch owner, oh, and his was in Texas. He was driving a car with Texas plates and carrying a 380 Beretta with the serial number filed down.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: He fought extradition and wasn't returned to Kentucky until 1991 where he was convicted of burglary and being a felon in possession of a gun. He was sentenced to 20 years, but could be out in five with good behavior. Of course he could.
0: Even though he killed somebody in prison. Well, that was in Texas, though, and it was a black
1: guy. (sighs) God. um, I know. Kathy Young, the Colorado detective who, all these years later, thought she could make a case against Melanson, was still investigating. By now it was the early 90s. She tracked down Chuck Matthews, as well as the Burtons, And Lucille Burton, Sally's mother, said the girl who'd gone horseback riding with Roy way back when he first moved in with them when they were vacationing, said later he'd raped her, but she'd been afraid to tell anyone. And memo to Lucille, author Steve Jackson, and anyone else, he also raped Sally repeatedly. Duh. Kathy Young tracked down Sally in California who Jackson in his book said had become, quote, a mixed-up young woman who'd been through a series of disastrous relationships. Gee, I wonder why. That's what I wrote here. Hmm, I wonder <laughs> if being pimped out by her mom at 14 to a 37-year-old rapist and murderer had anything to do with that. Sally told Young the, quote, relationship, and that's their word, with Roy had been sexual, whether Ugh. she wanted it that way or not. Jesus Christ. He never hit her, but always let her know who was in control, and that she better not cross him. One time I wanted to leave the cabin, but he said I couldn't, she told Young. He didn't say what he would do if he tried, but I saw his eyes and knew I wasn't going nowhere. It's called coercive control, people. Young kept trying to meet with Frank Spadafora, the rancher who'd hired them fired Roy in Colorado, but he kept standing her up. When she flew out to California to talk to Sally, he was supposed to meet her in a bar. She had a layover, and he didn't show up. Then when she flew back, he said, oh, there was a misunderstanding. He was going to meet her when he flew back, but didn't show up. Finally, a mutual acquaintance got him to meet her. She also met with the inmate who told Under Sheriff Steve Fry how Melanson had said way back in 1974 he'd kill Michelle and um, where the body was. He was in Washington working as a mechanic, and remembered Roy well, and also remembered what he'd told Fry all those years ago, which was identical to what was in the report. This was almost two decades later, which usually means somebody's telling the truth. Yeah. And remember Thurman Wilder, the guy with the white Cadillac? She found he died in a crash a few years before in Louisiana, but Young convinced a Louisiana state trooper to go to the graveyard and check his headstone to make sure he was dead. That's just how detailed she was. She wasn't going to take somebody's word for it. She felt she had to do everything she could to prove Michelle was dead since they still didn't have her remains. In 1991, Young and another detective decided they'd go through all the evidence again and see what was there. She found the hairbrush, which had several long strands of hair in it and which no one remembered when the head of hair was found five years after the murder. She felt it still in braids, but they'd never been able to identify it as her. And nobody had said, hey, you know what, that young detective guy who apparently mm-hmm. was off the case after he bagged all the evidence, he got that hairbrush back. Nobody said that. So well, she's... Nobody
0: even checked. Gee, what do we have for evidence right. to check against this?
1: Because why do you get something like that as evidence if not to use it in something like this? So Kathy Young sent the hairbrush and the head of hair to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, and they used DNA and matched it mitochondrial DNA, the head of hair that was found was Michelle's. She also contacted an outfit called NecroSearch. They were scientists who used forensics to try to determine where and when a body had been dumped. There's a Season 9 forensics file about this case that goes into this in great Ooh, detail. Oh, And um, they just talk about the Michelle Wallace yes. part. They don't. Melanson, still in prison in Kentucky, was still running his mouth. He told a couple of mates he killed and disposed of an unwilling woman and dumped her in the Colorado mountains where it's hard to find a body. He said he liked it when women get feisty and he had to get rough with them. He also was busy on the romance side. He convinced a woman he'd met through her son, another inmate, to marry him. Kathy Young went out to Kentucky to try to talk to Melanson, and while there she was asked by the woman's son, who I think she was interviewing because he had been a, a cellmate of Roy's. But that guy asked Young to tell his mother all about Roy's history because he didn't like his mom going out with Roy or being married to Roy. But the woman said Roy told her he was falsely accused and even let out of prison in Texas because they found they had the wrong man. And then Young brought up everything else about Roy. And this woman who had married him had just answers and excuses for everything, Good. including the guy he killed. She said the guy made racist statements. To Roy, so he killed him, you know, because the guy upset him so much for making racist statements against white Southern Roy. But Kathy Young's big mission in Kentucky was to talk to Roy. Coincidentally, it was on what would have been Michelle's 43rd birthday, April thirteenth, 1992. She'd gotten some tips from the FBI behavioral guys who who told her to do it without a male officer there, and he'd be more willing to talk. He just couldn't resist trying to charm women as part of his thing. True. She said he was polite and reassuring, not flirty and giving her come-ons like she'd expected. So she started to relax. Then she realized, oh my God, this is how he does it. He's polite and reassuring. He's not some, you know, a yeah. lady. Yeah, he's not. So she got firm with him and told him she wasn't going to give up on the case, that it would go to a conclusion, and he was the only suspect. He had denied knowing Michelle or anything like oh, that. Right. Then he dropped the act. He was still polite, but there was an edge to his voice. He told her they were wasting their time in 1974, and she was wasting it now. And she showed him a photo of the hair. Yeah. And he stopped what he was saying in mid-sentence and looked stunned, then changed the subject, and she realized that he got rattled seeing remains of his victims. Oh, and like some. Yeah, and he ended the conversation. He ended the meeting. They'd talked for about 20 minutes. Melanson was served a warrant for murder. Finally. Yes. He demanded Kathy Young be taken off the case. He said she was prejudiced against him, and she had hauled him in shackles out of his cell and grilled (laughs) him, and no other prisoner had ever been treated so rudely. Who does that remind you of? No one has ever been treated as rudely as he. Another sociopath who we all know... My theory on that is that he bamboozled everyone, including the guys who's investigated him. And when he finally came across a woman investigator who he couldn't make fall for his act, it made him very nervous.
0: Well, I think sometimes um, men are more easily...
1: Oh, oh, by other men, yeah. Yeah. But NecroSearch, meanwhile, was able to determine by pine needles found in Michelle's hair exactly where it had come from. Above oh, the yes. timber line, yes, I saw that yeah, that's yeah. A, it, it, for the forensic files goes yes, into so it quite it, I won't get into the science'
0: what I saw, right,
1: right. above the timber line on the north side of the mountain, and then there were some other things. They went for a search and they found ended up finding her skull and some other bones. Mm-hmm. What happened was it looked like he'd tossed her off the road right where he and Chuck had stopped that time, and her body had gone down the hill a little and maybe landed against a tree, and some critter had brought the hair back up. Mm. But if when they were searching, they had gone farther, just like Chandra Levy, if they had gone farther off the trail. And as I said, it was right near where Roy made Chuck stop the car that day, 18 years before, that Chuck had told the cops about at the time, and also that the inmate had told the cops kind of where Roy said, Roy was tried in August 1994, 20 years to the month after Michelle was killed. Wow. He didn't attend the trial because he said he was innocent and would have been forced to wear a shock belt where they can zap you, you know, if you try to make a move or something. Um, So he sat in a cell and listened on audio. He filed a motion saying the authorities were, quote, seeking to vindicate their otherwise absolute power over me while I am under their control. And memo, coercive controllers don't like it when other people try to control them. But he also didn't want to attend because he didn't like the fact her remains were going to be shown to the jury, his attorney said.
0: That's right.
1: And at a pretrial hearing six months earlier, the prosecutor had pulled a black cloth off a glass case to reveal her skull, and Melanson... Blanched, according to Jackson. His Good. hand shook, and he turned to look at Young, who was sitting at the prosecutor's table, and he nodded. Like, she thinks it was like maybe you got me, or oh. she isn't sure, but knowing that the remains are going to be shown at the actual trial, he didn't want That's to go.
0: Interesting.
1: The prosecution couldn't bring up his previous crimes at the actual trial. And, of course, in the book, we get the usual pro-prosecution outrage rather than a considered constitutional look at the legal system and why a judge would make that ruling, which is one of my, as you know, peeves. Yes. Of course, too, the author has to describe the public offender as a young, pretty public defender. Mm Oh, Jesus. And I know this isn't a book review, but this is one of my top peeves with male authors of nonfiction. Every woman's attractiveness is noted, Yes. but the men are barely described.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And when they are, it's not whether they're attractive or not. And I know people may say, well, why would a guy describe another guy as attractive? But why do you have to d- tell people whether a woman's attractive or not? He also says she she was, quote, appointed to the case at the taxpayer's expense. No and that's another shit. peeve. The implication being that someone like Melanson doesn't deserve his constitutional right to representation. If Matt, we had Matt here, we could talk about it more. I, I just got re- frustrated. The Constitution has to work for everybody. Yes, the reason, and even the worst guy in the world, worst person, most awful Jeffrey evil Edson. monster, has a has a defense. <laughs> has a right to be represented. Is to keep the system honest and to make sure innocent people. Aren't convicted, and just, no matter and how much you may make think they make sure they're that guilty.
0: everyone's constitutional rights are upheld, no matter right. whether they're guilty or innocent. Exactly.
1: So anyway, Melanson was ultimately convicted of murder in the first degree, and sentencing under the laws that were in place in 1974, when he committed the crime, meant he'd be up for parole in 2012. Mm. And this was 1994, and that doesn't mean... Like, his sentence started in 1974. It means that there was yeah. a more lenient law for that charge in 1974, think, yeah. back in the old free will in 70s. So that was 1994, and while the trial was going on, and a few years before a revolution had taken place in forensics, That's as we right. know, DNA being used to solve crimes. It had been used in Michelle's case to prove the remains were her, but slowly it was also being used to tie criminals to crimes and to solve cold cases. In 2000, Melanson was required by federal law to add his DNA to the federal database because he was a violent, convicted criminal. And that's when they were finally getting CODIS up and running. All 50 states were now locked into it. It would take a few years, but for Roy Melanson, the chickens were coming home to roost. That's right, Roy. It started in Napa, California. Where the crime scene investigator in July nineteen seventy four had bagged that cigarette butt, the towel with no blood, the murder weapon, never knowing if they'd be used as evidence. The bar Fagiani's was still closed around it, the grungy blue collar neighborhood had become hip and trendy.
0: So so she kept that. But lock. the old
1: bar still stood there, uh, locked up, just as it had in nineteen seventy four. Right. Blood still on the floor, the one stool still pulled out from the bar. I kinda get chills at that. Ooh. Coins the thief had dropped still on the stairs. You wonder why they didn't take them for evidence. A detective, Don Weiniger, had been working on the case since two thousand six. That was the year they convicted a guy using DNA evidence, still a relatively new forensic tool in Napa. So even after CODIS was set up, a lot of places were very slow. They were. And remember,
0: it used to take months and months and months. Well,
1: and yes, and we'll see that here. That led them to looking back... Because they had successfully convicted somebody in 2006, that led them to looking back into other cold cases and led them to Anita Andrews' murder. And it doesn't say in the book, but I read in a newspaper article that I couldn't find later, that part of it was they knew there was preserved evidence. And when you start looking at cold cases that you want to try DNA on, obviously you need something that has DNA or might potentially have it to investigate. And some cold cases don't have that. With the case, he also inherited Muriel, Anita's sister, who'd been hounding police for more than 30 years to find her sister's killer. Another detective had sent the towel and other evidence to the California Department of Justice lab in December 2001. Wow. But when a detective checked in 2004... It hadn't been tested yet.
0: Well, I bet with cold cases, they're not priorities. Right, they're not
1: priorities. And California had a lot of... And especially when DNA testing first started, it went very slowly. By 2006, Weiniger still couldn't find a record of the results, so he called the criminalist listed on the report, and she found that the towel had tested positively for male DNA, but it was degraded um, and had to go to a private lab with better equipment. Uh So a year later... In 2007, or not a year later, because I think that was late 2006, but in April 2007, Weininger heard back that the sample didn't meet the standards to be loaded into CODIS. It was just too degraded. So he decided to send the cigarette butt and the other evidence to the lab, including blood and hair samples, the screwdriver, and the broken glass. Two years later, so now we're in 2009, he got a call back. The cigarette butt had a good enough sample to load up to CODIS. At the time, there were 7 million DNA profiles from offenders in the FBI database, and it had had more than 93,000 hits. That was 2009. I think at the beginning of this, I said there's now 12 and a half guess, million or yeah. I'm something. surprised there's
0: not more, but...
1: Well, they got a lot of those guys, you know, who were already there. Yeah. Two months later, still in 2009, there was a hit yeah. on the cigarette pot. Guess who? Oh,
0: um, Oki.
1: No, no, uh, oh. uh, uh, Roy Melonson. Yeah. When Weiniger confronted Roy in prison, Roy was dismissive. He'd seen a TV show about how some woman in a lab had falsified millions of DNA samples or something, and he didn't think DNA was was very reliable. (laughs) (laughs) Before she moved on to drug testing. (laughs) This was still the era, even though it was only around 10 years ago, when people were much more dismissive of DNA. In the 90s, people just thought it was some fad. A lot of people didn't understand it. And I think that kind of carried over, especially somebody like Roy who'd been in prison for a while. He also told Weiniger the DNA couldn't be his. He'd never been to that bar. He'd never been to Napa. Well, it was his. Ha! In 2011, Melanson, now in his 70s, fat, and with a variety of health problems that put him in a wheelchair, was convicted of Anita Anders' murder and sentenced to life without parole. Though he was in prison in Colorado, if he ever got out, he'd have to go to prison in California. Meanwhile, things were humming along in Louisiana. Where in 2010, state police were loading DNA from all their cold cases in Dakotas. Whoa. In April 2010, they got a hit on DNA found on Charlotte's sour wine. It was Melanson. At this point, Vince Lejeune, her um, boyfriend, Charlotte's boyfriend, we remember him, Mm. had been hounded for more than 20 years about her murder. The main cop who was after him, Ken Foster, had told people, that boy killed that girl, and I'm going to catch him. He huh. told anybody who would listen. He had finally retired in 2007, so just a few years before. And Vince had had a rough time of it, including drugs and drinking. He was now in his mid-40s. He'd considered suicide several times, Aww. but he had custody by then of two daughters, and he was focused on them. When the sheriff's department came looking for him in 2010, he was suspicious. They wanted him to come down to the station to talk because there was a development in Charlotte's case. And he thought he was going to just be be hounded or not arrested, but just hounded more. When he went down, and I think he brought a friend or a brother or somebody with him, and they told him that they had found who the murderer was, and it wasn't him. It was some drifter. He broke down. Melanson was indicted for murder in 2011 in that case in Louisiana, but he hasn't been tried, given his other convictions. In 2017, Melanson was up for parole in Colorado for the second time. He wanted to be paroled to a nursing home and live out his remaining God days on Medicaid, according to Steve Jackson's blog. He's in a wheelchair. He's very fat. Now, He also said he never committed the murder. He also said his conviction was illegal because they couldn't determine the cause of death and that there were no detainees in other states, which or detainers, which is a question they ask parolees, if we let you out, do you have to go to prison in another state for any reason? He said no. So he must have um, forgotten about that pesky life without parole conviction in California and the warrant for murder indictment in Louisiana. How
0: fucking asshole.
1: Meanwhile, Pauline Klump, the poor Arthur landlady who disappeared four days before Charlotte Sauerwein was killed, is still missing. A man who traveled with Melanson after Klump disappeared later told investigators that Melanson had told him he killed women, plural, and dumped their bodies in a swampy area near Fort Worth.
0: Like, if someone's telling you stuff, what do you think? I, I, well, if I you're mean, a drifter, people you're, people or think they think he's full of up. bullshit yeah, or
1: whatever, Port, Ar- so, Port Arthur Police Detective Scott Gaspard told the Port, Port Arthur News in 2016 that he believes Melanson is one of the worst serial killers in U.S. history. I think the only thing that kept him from being worse than he was was he was in jail. And God only prison. knows what. But I think he killed a lot more people. Yes, I'm than sure he
0: did. I'm, I was just going to say, I'm sure right. he killed a lot.
1: Gaspard and Louisiana State Police were working together when this article was written on similar cold cases from the same time frame, and they hoped to confront Melanson soon, Gaspard said, although that was three years ago, and I looked for another article and couldn't find one, although, quote, We are interviewing Klump's family now and finding as much information as we can, he said, referring to her last whereabouts and actions. The old case files are sketchy at best. We are putting together a case file leaning towards some type of probable cause. He, meaning Melanson, is the actor, meaning the suspect. We want to confront him and see if he'll tell us more. Good luck. At this point, he will die in prison, but for my case, I want to find the remains and close the case. I'm not interested in lengthy prosecution, but finding her remains and putting her to rest. And the Port Arthur News writes, Melanson has been a suspect in the murder of Clump from the beginning. Her husband at the time was staying in a motel in Galveston where he was working. When possible, he would travel back to town and visit with her before going back to work. When he couldn't get a hold of her, he came back to town to check. Gaspard said the man found some of her personal items at the home um, including a pot of gumbo she'd left cooking on the yeah. stove, and it had cooked for days. It's a miracle the house didn't burn down. And the week before this article was written, Louisiana psychic Karen Janice met with the Port Arthur police in hopes of helping them find her remains. And I always feel when they call in a psychic, it's they got nothing.
0: Sometimes a psychic's
1: well, Gaspar said he was a skeptic, but he brought her to various areas where crimes had occurred, and um, she didn't have knowledge of the areas and was able to provide intimate details only police knew. Alison Dubois. Uh, yeah, I know. He said, I brought her to four crime scenes, and she told me about things she could not have known. I just brought her and asked her, What do you see here? He said. Before Denise <laughs> was even brought um, to the Poor Arthur area, she asked if there was a bar close by where the car was found, where Clump's mm-hmm. car was found. Bars play Maybe a big she part just in this. I bar know, so she skating. could have a drink. I know that's me. <laughs> <laughs> a, bar. a search was performed in an area near a bar in Port Acre's, which I guess is the area um, where this all happened. But the landscape had changed in the 28 years since Clump's disappearance. Brush and tall grass hampered the search. Janice said via phone to the Port Arthur reporter that all she was given was a photograph of a woman she later learned was Clump. I was able to actually describe the person who killed her. I described the guy, and they said, you're describing the suspect as he was 30 years ago. Hmm. Janice believes she knows how Melanson killed Klump and that the killer removed her head, tossing Ah. it in a grassy area. This man is very dangerous, evil. I looked at him through the victim's eyes as he was killing her, and he was smiling, she said. Ah. This guy is very sick. He's killed other women. That's right. They told me he's a serial killer. I said, you don't understand. He's killed more than you'll ever imagine, more than you know about. Yeah. I believe that. Janice had worked in the past with law enforcement in Port Arthur and other areas as well. She has helped police locate remains in Mississippi and in Canada. Hmm. She said her faith has helped her deal with hmm. the visions, and she feels her mission is to help others in ways that other people can't.
0: Okay.
1: She didn't charge for her services, which is a big plus because lots of times people just come out of the woodwork. Allison DuBois doesn't. I know, that. I know. I know. I she used to is, like that show. She I is like a that real show. person. I know. Um, it said they were going to return with cadaver dogs, and I could, couldn't could find a uh, follow-up article. There may have been one, and it's just either the website or I didn't look close enough. Police in Colorado have also looked into whether Melanson was responsible for a body of a Salt Lake City woman who was found in a Grand Junction swamp in 1974, but I couldn't find any more on that. And as Steve Jackson points out, whenever he was free from prison, he attacked women. Just the fact that after he killed Pauline Klump, which he obviously did, four days later, he killed Charlotte Sauer.
0: It's like Ted Bundy was. I mean, like just going, I know. going like Yeah, that. he escalated
1: yeah. big time. Well, it was DNA combined with a healthy dose of Melanson's carelessness arrogance and big mouth that got him convicted in a lot of ways the dna shouldn't have been necessary no not only has dna changed things but people's attitudes have also changed i'm not sure what could have been done differently with the anita andrews case the napa one but it boggles my mind that he wasn't nailed for michelle wallace given all that they had well, I understand DAs don't want to convict, like I said earlier, without a body because they don't want to get an acquittal, there was just so much. The fact, too, that he was resigning with a 14-year-old girl should have had him in prison. Oh, shit. And also forced more of an investigation. I feel like there were a lot of avenues. I know I'm not a cop. I'm not an investigator. The book doesn't necessarily say everything they were doing, but there were a lot of dots they didn't necessarily connect. And I think attitudes towards women back then like the 14-year-old. I think somebody should have looked into who called Alice Moss in Boulder and said, don't come to court. I know. You know, these... And also that was a long-distance call. Right. It would have been easy to... And and I also think of Vince Lejeune in Louisiana and how his life was ruined. I know. And how the total focus on him may have kept them from looking more closely at other evidence. And while well, things have changed in some ways, they haven't. But I, you see a lot in cases where there's someone like Kathy Young or some other cop or some other prosecutor who says, I'm going to go the extra mile to make sure we... Convict this guy, and not like the guy who hounded Vince Lejeune, but, but the, by looking at the evidence. Well, to make sure we solve
0: it. I mean, they, right. want, to, they and the, want
1: to solve it. Right, and the thing is, Roy Mellinson was such an obvious candidate. And that always kills me. Roy Melanson was such an obvious candidate, but nobody could do anything about it. And then poor Vince Lejeune, who there was no evidence against, I except know. for he was the boyfriend, is hounded for 20 years. It's
0: crazy. And yeah. I think a lot, of, a lot of the issues, and like I've said a couple times... It depends on who the victim is Mm -hmm. and what somebody thinks is important. And I think that young women or women victims, I honestly don't think that especially I was going to say nowadays maybe it's taken more seriously but it really isn't no. and we're looking at this I know I keep talking about Jeffrey Epstein F- 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 but it's cuz he's in the news
1: people have a real dislike of teenage girls they they don't give a shit I right I mean
0: uh, right it's crazy and uh, and
1: then if you extrapolate to that to teenage young women of color It's even worse, worse. you know. And also, all along the way, you need someone who goes the extra step. Like when Mm -hmm. Michelle's mother first called the sheriff two days or whatever after she, or maybe it was three, after she didn't call, in a lot of cases, they're going to say she's 25 years old. She didn't call her mother, you know. And even when the mother says she said she calls, she always calls. Yeah. You know, the fact that they said we need to look Instead of just blowing well, her off. Anyways, yeah.
0: well, thank you. That was very, yes. very interesting. Yeah. And, no, I, and I do remember that forensic process because I remember the hair. The and, hair. It's very hard to You know what I was hair. thinking, though, when they were the first braids. looking. I'm a big advocate of dogs, mm-hmm. sniffer dogs. And when they were first looking for her, if they had had a sniffer dog, she probably would have been found. Possibly, body, if they brought her it her
1: up roommates. to Kevlar pass yes. The thing that intrigued me at first was there were two things. The whole way DNA has changed everything Yes. but also that there are guys like this this isn't somebody who wasn't on anyone's radar i know i mean there are a lot of serial killers who nobody like ted bundy in a lot of ways and stuff who are not even close to being on someone's radar or they're just a little blip among a million other guys but this guy it was so obvious i know you know he could not stop raping people i know I know. You know, and it's still nobody, you know, it was somebody else's problem.
0: I, I honestly don't think rape is considered that, that serious a crime. No, it's not. To a lot of people of a certain gender. Um, I know that some would argue with me about that, but I really... Some have
1: argued with me about that. You but know. I don't... In no.
0: Our society in general, I don't think it... And also, child molestation as well. Yeah. I mean, look at the, what people get for...
1: I know. And that's but why I like when people say, oh, things are so much worse today. No, it's that people didn't talk about no, the stuff didn't. or consider things And important. the thing
0: is, the people that do those kind of crimes
1: continue to do them yes. when they have a chance. Especially they if they get away. stop. Right, they're not going to stop. Child molesters do not stop. Right. Right, especially if they get away with it. But anyways. So we have it's, all day about that. Right. So we have um, recommendations. We're doing the same one and it's also kind of Nellies. and it's also kind of a look back at something we did a show yes. on two years ago that we're now thinking differently about. Yes, we are. Yes we are.
0: So today our Negative Nellies, we both watched on HBO, I Love You Now Die. Yes.
1: And I want to say before we get into it, that we did an episode in September 2017. It was episode 33, the Michelle Carter, Conrad Roy texting. And it was was Conrad Roy texted to death was the title. And we've learned a lot in two years. Yes, we have. And... We were coming from a different place, yes, we... and re-listening, when I was watching this HBO documentary, I thought, you know, I think maybe if I had to do that episode all over again, I'd do it a, a little different differently. I and... might not do it differently, but I'd think about things differently. Yes, have a... Well, I um, re-listened
0: to it after I watched that, because we texted about it while yeah. we were watching yeah. it, and I, as I said to Mo... <laughs> I said this morning, uh, I was very annoyed by us Me because too. I thought we were very judgmental. judgmental and quick to blame.
1: Yes, and while we do acknowledge her mental health issues and other things, we take the easy road that, and I feel like part of it, not that I'm making excuses for myself, is all the information available was you know Painting from the media her as a mean girl right and mean girl you can and when you watch the documentary you can see that there are different ways you can present information although i will say and i didn't mention it in our um in our
0: episode but I remember when I watched it on, uh, was it 48 Hours that did the show? Mm-hmm. It must be, because Dateline has one that I'm not going to watch that was just recent. Yeah. That I found him kind of annoying, even though I felt bad because he, he was a fan. Yes,
1: I, I'm, I'm looking at him in a different light. N- but I seen. did, even
0: back then, I thought he was annoying yes. when I saw his video. But
1: why don't we launch into
0: our rating now? So it was I Love You, not I um, on HBO. It's a two-part series. The first part focuses on the prosecution. And then the second part, I think is a little longer focuses on From the, the defense. defense right so our first thing is The bad, first reenactment. bad
1: reenactment there weren't any no that I think they would show things like they showed a generator, maybe it wasn't the generator. but they didn't really have they did not they have They did be- not that
0: I remember they had they just showed the text on right the screen, which to which me is, isn't really comes under
1: visuals so so
0: none zero for that? yeah narrative cliches,
1: no, no. It was another case of there being no narration.
0: Yes. Which, there were we there like. were words on
1: the screen. Yes. But But the words were all theirs. Well right? no, there in oh, no a well, so while awesome. there was a card that That's said right. like in February twenty thirteen, like one or two sentences. Again when there's no narrator There are fewer names. The only
0: cliches come from things that people say. Right. People say cliches all the time. So I don't blame them, and I don't blame the filmmakers
1: for... And it's up to the filmmaker to choose how to use those, and when we get into maybe storytelling or whatever, we can talk a little bit. And
0: the people that they talked to were all relevant, which is... Yes. I like. So you don't have, like, Ray Romano (laughs) saying, and
1: then she texted him. Although they did
0: have a couple of on-the-street people. Yes, they they did. But they
1: were... We'll get into that when we talk yes. about cliches and stuff.
0: Racial gender stereotypes? No.
1: No. 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 Y- everybody really, was white. Right. Because it was Cause you know, it's, that part of Massachusetts. Yeah. And the South Shore. And you mostly get those again when you have a narrator. Although, yes. or, Although a filmmaker can choose who they're going to use. But in something like this, it's white. White City. It's, well, it's a, when
0: it's a documentary, it's harder to right. to do that right. when, when you're just dealing with the people who are involved. I mean, right. they are what they are. Yes. When it's fiction, it's different.
1: Lack of good visuals. I would say there were very, very good, good visuals. visuals. First of all, they used the text's very effectively Unfortunately, yes, fortunately did. they did a little bloop noise because <laughs> especially if you and I are texting when we're watching or something knitting. or and I also like to look up things on my map on yes, my iPad so. to see where places are and this one you have to you had to watch the screen they had a lot of photos yeah and they made good use of those they made good use of even small things like the media, scrum. I saw my friend Denise, who works for AP. <laughs> yeah. She's in Virginia now, but at the time she covered courts in Boston for a long time. And I got little, a couple little glimpses they of her. Showed all the, and they
0: showed the, um, the the setting. I like more, but it's not. I, I wouldn't take any points off for them. But in general, I don't know how much the setting had to do
1: with it, but I still like seeing. I like seeing the setting it. when it's, Accurate, which they did. Yes. I mean, he, his father, is a boat captain, yeah. and they live on the south shore. And so they would show the boat, the similar boats, and they would show the towns, and they'd show Boston. Although they
0: make it look a little more picturesque than sometimes. Well, they, they always
1: are. do. But but I was watching one of some older true crime show that, and I was watching it because it took place in Maine, which I is Jim Hicks. Most of Maine's towns are very very small. Yeah, and they're showing like Bangor. Or whatever, instead of like they're talking about. I think it was it wasn't Pittsfield, but it was one of those towns, Canaan, yeah. or. But they're showing Bangor, you know, well, it's and it's like, like the one
0: when I did the Nicole Cable when they had the uh, the like reenactment and they're driving through like this city, right? It's like it's
1: like where where'd they go? place you
0: you gotta. I think if you're from a larger city, you don't realize how small the towns and cities are in places in like Maine. Maine, and there are not Art in any city that's. But yeah. I think
1: in this documentary, it was the good. setting, I mean, we're fair, both fairly familiar with Massachusetts. And also they had a lot, they had a nice variety of photos. They showed relevant ones. And I like
0: nowadays that where people are using drones so much. I actually love the aerial views. Yeah, I like more that. of them now
1: than yes, used I, to Yes, I app. do like the aerial views. Really good and they also made good use of just, I guess it's called B-roll or whatever, just crowd shots, mm-hmm. people shots. And they did the thing, which I also like when they're interviewing somebody where they'll also have a shot of the person just sitting there,
0: yeah,
1: um, not talking, yeah, I um, get sense of
0: them, yeah,
1: same. She director I, did. Um, I I should remember her first name, but her last name's Carr. And I realized that I've lo- I like all her documentaries, yeah. although I haven't watched the one about the cannibal cop yet no, because I, I just what was the other one? She did? did the Olympic gymnast one, yes, which was very good. I didn't see that we said. Yeah, and she did Mommy Dead and Dearest. And her name's Erin Lee Carr, and she's fairly young, but... I love Mommy Dead and Dearest. So and and I really liked the Olympic gymnast one. But she has a very, and we'll talk about it in a minute, but a very good storytelling yes. sensibility. So the
0: next one is Missing Pieces. It was pretty well... There were things in there I didn't know about. Yes, it was, she, a lot of things that we didn't,
1: we didn't yes. know. There might have been more that
0: she could have told, but.
1: There's a lot to the story. I think she had everything that needed to be in there to tell the she story. She couldn't, some
0: of it she couldn't do because Michelle Carter would not be interviewed and neither would any of her family. Right. So. Although that didn't stop her from
1: doing a good job. No, representing she did a good job
0: side. representing that side. Inaccuracy, anachronisms. No, No. Nope. like we were just saying, the setting was, the visuals were good. Uh, she didn't misrepresent. No, nope. nope. the town or nope. anything like that. Nope.
1: Storytelling, good. I, I say that is the 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 best thing about it. First of all, the way it was set up in the two parts. We were talking about this earlier. The first part that kind of pre- that presents the prosecution's case is the familiar story. Yes, and it's the one. We were playing off of when we did our episode. I mean, I
0: hate to be one of those the media, but that's how it was presented. This girl, this
1: sociopathic, mean, manipulative girl. Who obviously had mental health issues and desperately needed attention. She
0: hounded this boy who was vulnerable
1: into killing himself. Right. Although it was, or maybe it wasn't the first episode that did bring up the stuff about the father. And listening to our old episode... That we did, I mentioned that the CBS one I saw didn't have the part about the father beating him up no. at all. And the father was interviewed in this, and you can see he's dead. a dick. He says what many people who abuse other people do is... He, oh, we got in a fight. He said, I was. it was equally... Yeah, but the kid was the one whose face was all beat up. Yeah. And he also said, I was just being a parent.
0: The father's girlfriend called Conrad a piece of shit Yeah, during this altercation, which made me think she was a fucking bitch, too.
1: Yeah, and so she does what I really like in the documentary, where you're presented a story that you think you know, and as you're watching it, you're like, yes, this is a story I know, and then the layers unfold. I felt like the second part was a tour de force of just excellent, just the way she used the elements, the way she used the texts, Because one thing about the the story... the first part
0: just showed the the text that we had all seen. Right. We had seen a lot of those. Yes,
1: and remember I read the whole day of text on our episode. But the way she told the story was, and like a lot of documentaries would have had actor voices reading them or would have showed somebody texting, and she just popped them on the screen with that boop noise. And, which was good, because the, you don't want inflection. Right. Because you don't...
0: And which it, we so you have to watch the screen, them. right.
1: Yeah. But I like it when... I like the method of storytelling where you're presented something, and you think that's what it is. And you're just going to see the same thing, and then... It makes you rethink it, it unfolds. Yeah. It certainly does, and we definitely and did. she did a good job, because by putting the prosecution one first...
0: Like you were saying, that's the one that we all, everybody who was reading about it, kind of knew. Right. We all knew. I mean, she added to it. There was
1: more more yeah. information.
0: There was, was more, the certainly more about the father. And crap. she was
1: very effective in some things like during the trial, and I think this was on the second part, the defense lawyer just brings up very briefly, and it had been admitted in court, uh, that the family split up because of the father's domestic abuse. Yes. And the mom... Kind of makes a show of getting up and leading her youngest daughter, who looked like she might have been eleven or twelve, out of the courtroom. My feeling is, why do you bring that child to the court? They're going to talk. First of all, they're going to be talking about Conrad's death graphically.
0: But but but, so the mother
1: makes this kind of big. You know, I know she's the mother of a dead kid and stuff, but makes this big show. But the that moment said a lot. Yeah. And said a lot about the family and what was going on. Well... And the filmmaker used it But just even the right in The way. first
0: part where the mother is saying, I had no idea he was feel- feeling that way. But then you... You, then you find the, out he'd tried he tried suicide four, four times. Which we already knew. Cause right. We yeah. But still, it reminded me of stuff that I had. Not that... Not, I don't want to fault her because it's horrible. Right, right. What happened was horrible to the, for the mother and everything, but... Come
1: on. And also, she used some people you don't see. Like, there's this reporter for Esquire. And when he first came on screen, I'm like, oh, this guy's going to be a total jackass.
0: No, but he was.
1: But he was actually one of the most insightful people. And I want to go see if I can find the story. Well, it's funny because
0: I listened to, um, I just listened to Two Crime Obsessed. doing. They just did the first, that's all I've listened to so far is the first part. And um, they didn't like what he had to say. In the first part, but I didn't feel like he was saying what he felt. No, he was I saying, he what, was saying people what people felt. felt. He was like, like he, the when Greek he said, chorus. Oh, he was ready to get photographed, right? And the, and the, uh, someone took offense at that. But I think he was saying, he wasn't saying. Oh, she was. A, he right. was saying she knew because she would because she's a young pretty girl, right? And if she had right. looked like shit, they would have commented on the fact right. that she looked like shit. And, so you right, can't and win. he and you he, might he was to look good if you can't win, and a
1: lot of. The, these shows use a bunch of like different reporters, and they all say just really obvious things or things you've already seen, like that talking head syndrome. This guy actually put things into context.
0: And he was there for a reason, because he had written a Yes, on
1: the which article. I want to find at some point and read. But one thing he said is, like I think it was the beginning of the second episode, everybody's here for the same reason. When somebody commits suicide, they want to blame yes, somebody and find a reason for it. And anyone you know...
0: Who, know, who has a loved one that has committed suicide will say, I don't know why, I don't know why, like, um, right. I don't know why he did that. Yeah, this was happening. Um, I know a couple people who have... Loved ones that, and I remember my ex husband's father, and he said, I don't know, you know, yeah, he was having it, but I don't, and
1: it's like, there wasn't a reason right. why. But for Conrad's parents, they were able to find there's a, a person that you can, that they can blame.
0: blame. It's not even a reason, it's a person, and they can take some of the guilt off their shoulders, right. and, even though
1: before she ever entered the picture, right? He
0: has those video
1: um, diaries. diaries. And also, I felt like the filmmaker did a great job of showing how he was a little more manipulative and controlling than you'd been given the idea of. And also, the old doctor, the one the intoxication yes. involved, yes. was given a lot more voice in this, so that it didn't sound like this ridiculous thing yes. that like Forty Eight Hours made it sound. Yes. I think on our previous episode, I said forty-eight we kind of hours. Stopped at that. I, well, I remember saying forty-eight hours made hay of that, but he made sense what he was saying, and um, and
0: then they did have someone refuting him, right? Um, but he made a good point that she had been on those their serotonin uptake inhibitors when she was a young teen and they are not
1: recommended. Right. And they can change someone. And I think that combined with her emotional problems. And another thing the filmmaker did, and I'm not even sure how she did this, except for just choosing what to show and what to use made me feel like the, and I think I texted you about this, made me feel like that defense lawyer is a hero. He's standing up in that courtroom knowing that he's defending this young woman, who everybody in that courtroom except for her parents vilifies and hates, and, and it's very unpopular. And I thought he was very calm, reason yes. rational, and he brave. Was not emotional. He did his but job. But I also
0: feel like there was never a sense with him that he had. Like sometimes you feel like the lawyers have an emotional stake. They become sometimes you feel like, and I'm not saying he was detached, but sometimes you feel like they become emotionally attached. With him, he was very he was
1: doing his job.
0: Matter of fact, about whatever whatever it is you think about her, the legal definition of what she did isn't manslaughter. And the big thing, and that the big thing that they talk about, and I don't know if this is, we're still on storytelling. The next thing, the next thing is freshness. So we can talk about yeah. that. But the thing that he pointed out very well and that we talked about in our, our last show, but we we acted like he was saying, that when she Not said our get, last show, but
1: our episode, our episode about,
0: about it. Where she told him to get back in the car. It wasn't a text. And a lot of people think it was. She supposedly said it on the phone. Oh, but I actually did mention she, that. Maybe she made that up. She, she, you did it the other thing, but we made it. it
1: clear in our episode she told him on her, that phone conversation. She yeah. she told she texted her friends yes. that she told him during the phone conversation to get back in the car. There's no record of her saying it. And one of the things I'm embarrassed about about that other episode is she lied about so many things and I made that clear. And she would self-aggrandize. Yes. She just constant like almost nothing she said, could you believe? So why wouldn't she lie about that? And maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. Whether she did or not, but I think it's a point. Back in right, I mean right. But I think as far as her saying it, that's a point I should have understood better and made more clearly that because that's the thing the whole case hinged on was her supposedly saying that. Yes, it is. And back to the defense attorney.
0: When the judge handed down the verdict, he said, "Up until that point, she hadn't broken the law." Right.
1: I think the defense attorney and a couple other people make a very make the distinction very well. Be between you can be appalled at her behavior, but this is a court case and you have to go by and legally. It's setting, it's setting a precedent right. that's
0: very important. And
1: but but also about him, I wanted to say that you know you talk about him being detached or not really detached, but focusing on the legal aspects, and he did it in a way. It wasn't, like, cold. No. It wasn't overly, but you felt he like you he also had, as a human being, concern about yes. her. There are a couple things where they showed in the court where somebody would be saying something awful about her, and he was turning yes. and looking at her. Yes. I think he actually had empathy for oh, her. Oh, yes, I think he And did. maybe well, he was to know them the only well, person. I'm sure, but know. I'm sure there are lawyers who get to know their clients and hate them, too, you know? Yes. I thought this documentary, more than the CBS one I had seen a couple of years yeah, ago... Yeah, they didn't show him much on that. ...showed one. him. And when he's standing up in that courtroom, saying things that he knows that there's a hundred people yeah. behind him, all wishing they could kill him, and he just plugs along but and... But he also
0: stressed the importance... Of what it means for future cases, yes. how this case is, is And tried. his name's
1: Joe Cataldo, by yes, the way. Yes, Joe
0: Cataldo. And so the next thing we have on our list is freshness. And it was fresh. It was, even though it was a story we all yes, know. Yes, and
1: it's, I, it's try, I tend to not want to watch things about stories I already know because I get frustrated well, like when I they said, leave I'm things, things out. I am not going to watch that Dateline about but, Yeah, those. well, Dateline's getting on my nerves anyway. But I thought <laughs> it was fresh in that we thought we knew. Yes. It was fresh enough to make me realize I'd had yes, uh Both of us felt yeah. bad about that yes. episode. Sorry, yes. Michelle. So, no, so no points taken away for freshness.
0: Repetition? No. I mean, no. the filmmaker does it in a way that we have seen before, where when they do repeat something, it's to show you... Right, like an
1: innocent man.
0: A different perspective. Right. You, like the text. Okay, this is like in the first part, you're saying, she's saying, well, have you done it yet, Well, blah, 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 blah. And then... When we see it in the second part, we kind of see it in the the context of what he's saying to her. So, yes. And so she tells it in that
1: way, here's what you think you know. And for a little while, I'm going to go along with that and present the story in the way you think you know it. Now I'm showing it to you again. Now that you have new information, now what do you think? Yes. And frankly, the fact that um, Conrad could have been manipulating... Michelle is something that two years ago didn't occur to me, and now that I've read a lot is listeners you about know about your
0: coercive
1: control, yes about that type your, of thing your favorite yes, thing. yes, and how people can be subtly manipulated and stuff. Well, she was a very vulnerable and person he told
0: her and people were like, well why didn't she just call some because Any other friend would have called someone and and told them. But he knew she wouldn't. And he told her, I will hate you if you tell, I will never talk to you again.
1: And he was her only true friend. He was her only friend. He played on her vulnerabilities and manipulated her vulnerabilities. And
0: the fact that they never, and we talked about this in our episode before, they only met a few times. And any time that they set up to meet, and they would one they of them would, would break off, and the other would be like, "Okay." And right. They didn't really want to meet, and I think it's because in each other they had this this kind of. It could be the board. person they
1: wanted it to be yeah. without having to deal with the messy. And and, they could, being, and you
0: could kind of be a confessor, or tell anything right. you want, and the other person isn't judging you, right. or understands what you're right. saying. It's a bad
1: combination sometimes. But also some of the texts, like in the second part, he was very mean to well, her he in a lot of ways and playing on her vulnerabilities yeah. and the fact that she knew she acted desperate and wanted friends and stuff. And that's something that hadn't really come out. And I think it's people's abhorrence or... Um, disinclination to say anything bad about someone who died. But we're talking about a death that has led to somebody going to prison. So you need to talk about his behavior and how you can't avoid his behavior and how it contributed. And also you can't avoid, there shouldn't really be anyone to blame for this, but ultimately it's his parents' responsibility to take care of their child and know what's going on with him to not beat him up, to not be in denial or whatever about his problems, to get him help, whether he asked for it or not. I know. And I'm not saying they knew everything that was going on.
0: They knew there there were issues. Yes. It to be in denial, though. It is.
1: And I'm not saying it's the mother's fault he committed suicide, but I'm saying sometimes when someone commits suicide, it's no one's fault. And the best thing you can do is... Learn and understand what happened so you can look for signs in the future. And one big thing about this case is it puts the focus on the wrong thing. For both Conrad, the Conrad Roys of the world and the Michelle Carters of the world, that people with mental illnesses that make them seem like assholes are really at a disadvantage in this world because nobody wants to help them, no. and they're easily made into villains. And nobody wants to deal with them. So, um, so the
0: last thing is beating the drum, which I don't, I think it, it does not. It does not, unlike a lot of the other coverage of it. It shows a very thought, it's thought-provoking, but it shows a very even weight. Kind of, I, um, both. I don't think you're going to necessarily change your mind watching it. If you felt one way, you might still feel Although we way. did. We I mean, did. I'm not saying but we totally changed we our minds. I'm not
1: saying we totally changed our minds because we could have, before I listened to our podcast again, I thought I had actually been worse than I was. I mean, we did acknowledge she was obviously mentally yes. ill. We did we acknowledge did. that legally we felt she shouldn't have been no. convicted and, and you, I, but up. I agree
0: more with Amanda Knox's thing. Did you, I don't know if you got to that part with Snoopy. And Amanda Knox I, had written a um. An editorial about, and actually I agree with everything Amanda Knox said in her editorial, so you'll have to listen. You read the editorial. Didn't
1: I agree with it too? Because I remember feeling we like I did. We kind of agreed yeah, with I don't some think, of it. We I didn't think, agree with okay. all of oh, okay. it, but now
0: I more agree with okay, it. Okay, I'll now. have to listen to the rest. Yeah. So, But she said she shouldn't well, so have been convicted because right. she, that we're ignoring her mental right. illness right? Issues. That's right,
1: yes. And, and she and also, had a lot of them, too. Right. And and also, as far as, you know, you said it showed both sides equally. And we talked about this, especially with the staircase and stuff. It becomes obvious later when you find out more information about something that it's very easy in a documentary, even one as long as the staircase, to just leave stuff out. Yes. For instance, in this, she has more with that doctor, who yes. the involuntary intoxication guy, so he can actually explain... What he's and talking, that, and he doesn't even get into that. No. Earlier, just, she has. Hey, that's
0: not all he was talking about. Earlier, so. she
1: has some talk about other things, and it's it makes much more sense in the context he gives it than on the forty eight hours thing. Well, and it's interesting because he mentions that he was brought in to look at what Conrad
0: was taking and what was doing, going on with him, and then he wanted to know more
1: about her too. Right. So, and the other thing too, just little things like the famous photo of Michelle. Carter with that kind of sneer or snarl or whatever where Nancy Grace says, what's with that puss? What? No, what's that puss on well, her face? Well, first of all, if you work in the news business and see, like especially back in the old film days when you saw every frame on a roll of film, it's very easy to catch somebody as people take selfies and stuff you know, and with a weird look on their face. And a lot of documentaries use that photo against her. Yeah. And this one... Had more context to it. Like, they used it to show how the media and the public went off on it. Mm -hmm. And as far as beating the drum, like, the public, like, that one lady who was going on and on. There were
0: two. There was one in the car. And then there was one in the restaurant or whatever.
1: (laughs) But then there were a lot of people that... Right, and that, she was showing the documentary. Was showing what people think. Yes, but she tempered that ex, those extreme reactions with other more thoughtful yeah. reactions. And there were people that had more thoughtful reactions even back yeah. then. Yeah, I love listening to all those Boston South those Shore accents. The other thing
0: I wanted to say is, and I texted you about this. I think if you are a desp- if you are a lonely teenager that feels like you don't have any friends, the worst. Thing in the world would be to have the people that you thought of as friends stand up under oath and say, Yeah, we never really wanted to hang out with her. Uh, yeah, we,
1: avoided we avoided her. And, her. Yeah. We,
0: we weren't really her friends. In all honesty, I think some of that was they were distancing themselves yeah. from her as well. But still. But still, it does suck. I mean, her desperate, it's so sad. It didn't suck see enough her. if you heard
1: it through the bathroom stall I door know. or something, but, uh, but. to have everybody on television all over
0: the country and world see it. And and just have to sit there while they're saying So that. I think
1: we did. Take any points away. No, From,
0: I give it 10 points and I, don't, I highly recommend it. I do.
1: I think it's good.
0: Not only if you're interested in the case, but just the whole all the issues it brings up to think about. It's a very thought-provoking story. There's so many different things you need, you know, suicide, why somebody would commit suicide, what the people around them. You know, there's just a lot of things about it that it's not just a manslaughter, you know, crime of the week type of thing. Right,
1: and as I mentioned, and I won't go into the whole thing again on our last episode, about the uh, 48 hours I saw about a boy in Utah, Idaho. Oh, state Line, Dateline, I saw state it. Dateline, right. Mm-hmm. Who almost kind of did the same thing, only he was very he was calculated while well, he filmed the girl yes. dying. But also, he was very calculated. Yes. It was almost like, I'm going to get this depressed person to yes. commit suicide. And yet, he... Got a smidgen of the attention yes, he did. that Michelle Carter did. And he was,
0: did. yes, he was more. And so we talked about some misogyny. Yes.
1: Yes, he was. And we talked about a lot of this. It is misogyny. If, if it had been a boy and a girl had committed suicide in the Michelle Carter case, if it had been turned I around, think you wonder how much. I think people would have been like, eh, well, she was depressed. And, and, and one of the things I before we go, can. too, because of the digital age. One of the things that made that documentary work so well was just the amount of material Michelle and Conrad provided. There are thousands provided. and, thousands, there are thousands, of and texts. thousands of texts and his video journals. Can you imagine if our texts were <laughs> all the selfies, his video journals? Yes. I know, I know, our texts would be well, everybody's yes, texts. Yeah, well, some texts people are boring. Clean, yeah, though. we can have good ones. But anyway, that's it for today. I have to. Go. But we're at our parents' house, by the way, because yeah, we always kind gone. of say where we are. Yeah, they they're are Oregon. They're in Oregon. We did say Liz. That at the beginning that we're at the parents. Yeah. no, we didn't. Yes, you did. No, we not We said at Shay, mom and dad. Yeah, but then we stopped. Remember, because oh, it wasn't because the microphone wasn't. I
0: don't
1: remember. Yeah, so I'm um feeling. we will have. Maybe we we'll have a
0: groovy tube. Again. We will
1: have a groovy tube next. We hope you check
0: that out. Oh, I told someone at work about groovy tube. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, and he, no, I was gonna. Oh, I'm sorry, again He's like, you do know that's an old show,
1: don't you? What groovy tube?
0: And I uh, no, uh, Brady bunch. And I said, no. Do you understand podcasts? Because there's a lot. Could, of podcasts it, what we're was the age about. of the person
1: you were talking? He's about. older than I. Oh, fuck him. And also, we realize for any of you groovy tube listeners, Barry Williams is here in Maine. This weekend, even as we record this, he's at the Yarmouth Clam Festival. And because it's the Yarmouth Clam Festival, of course, it's going to be 100 degrees out because it's never... I used to do my craft show. I know there. you did. And we Gordon, your run. ex-husband, used to run. But we are not going to go try to talk to Barry we're going. We're going to be hobnobbing. Oh, no, that's next, that's next weekend. weekend. We'll talk about that, too, on our next Crime and Stuff. But till our next Crime and Stuff, check out GroovyTube. Check out GroovyTube. And you can find crime... And stuff, like if you want to listen to that two-year-old episode about the texting, CrimeAndStuffOnline.com, you can find all our episodes. You can also find them on Apple Podcasts and anywhere you listen to the podcast. Oh, and we want to thank our latest Patreon donor, Wendy. And we want to thank her for donating. Thank you. We
0: thank all of our donors. Keeps us
1: being able to And we thank
0: all of our listeners.
1: Yes, we do. And, again, check out GroovyTube and... Without
0: our listeners, where would we be? We
1: could still be here talking. We wouldn't know we if there were any out there or not, right? we
0: talk no matter what. That's right. Okay, well, have a good whatever. Yep. I'll see you next time. And
1: thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Yeah, because yes. there's... And, um, okay, well, I'll cut that out for our, like, one... Listener. We're more popular among...